What is creativity? What are its origins? And how do we access creativity in our lives? This podcast explores the intersection of creativity, innovation, and everyday life. At this crossroads, we experience wonder and magic and, if we're lucky, transformation. It's the Quotidian. Welcome to The Quotidian. I'm Bradley Dennis. Thank you for joining us for this, our inaugural episode. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Carol Burbank. Dr. Burbank is an independent scholar, a mentor, a teacher, specializing in archetypal, mythic, and indigenous approaches to exploring the stories that shape our identities, our performances and roles, from the world of the arts to leadership studies, organizational Uh, and to social change movements. Dr. Burbank has a PhD from Northwestern University's Performance Studies Department and an MA in Creative Writing and English from Boston University. We talked today about a number of things, among them her work with storyweaving.com. Storyweaving is a platform she created to help individuals and teams and communities reclaim and reimagine the stories and narratives that shape their lives. Uh, We talked about that, her background and interest in Hawaiian energetics, as well as the role of personal narratives, theater, performative vulnerability, drag queens. It's a far-reaching episode and one that is certainly not free of imperfections on my part. This is a new endeavor for me. I'm new to this space. And I have to thank Dr. Burbank, especially for staying on point in this interview when my questions often wander. Um, But we both get to some wonderful insights and it is definitely worth sticking around to the end of the episode. Dr. Burbank is a wonderful, gracious guest and I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed being a part of the conversation. So please enjoy and welcome to episode one of The Quotidian with Dr. Carol Burbank. Dr. Carol Burbank, welcome to The Quotidian. Thank you for being here. It's an honor. It's my pleasure. Wonderful. Um, So as I've explained to folks in the introduction, um, you wear many hats, but of course I know you specifically through your work at Pacifica. Uh, graduate institute where you are, in full disclosure, my uh, graduate professor in uh, artist as activist, um, and one of the things I'm I'm really interested. In, you, you know, we've had a conversation. We've spoken a little bit about what this podcast is focused on, which is the intersection between everyday life and and the creative impulse, the creative energy. One thing that I'm particularly interested in talking to you about is your work with story weaving 
which is, is I believe this is the name of your website, storyweaving.com. And, um, and, and to kind of get a larger picture of that, but before we even get into that, I'm, I'm, I think I already know the answer to this question, but uh, do you consider yourself a, a creative person? Oh, absolutely. I do. You know, uh, in the way I live, as well as uh, the work I do, I'm a writer and an artist, and I mainly perceive and work through the world in as creative a way as I can. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind me prying a little bit, can you talk a bit about when you first noticed that impulse in you, in your life? Were you in a creative household? Was that something you did on the side? Was that just part of your personality or did it eventually kind of slowly creep in? That's a great question, Bradley. I, I, my household was a very supportive household and, and, and we all had, my father in particular was a photographer. Um, but I wouldn't say it was a highly creative household. We valued the arts. Uh, but I, I think I was always a little different. You know, I always saw the world in a little bit of a different way. I was the child who would say the thing that made other people uncomfortable because I would see it and observe it. Or I would make a joke that I thought was really funny and other people would be rather like, they wouldn't be appalled. I wouldn't say that, but they'd often be surprised by mm -hmm. what I was saying and what I was seeing, not at, just at in, the, early... in, the, in the spirit of, yeah, mm -hmm. way early. Yeah. And um, I just saw the world really differently from my family, which they were incredibly supportive of me and my creative endeavors, incredibly mm -hmm. supportive. But, um, even with my father's creativity and, and, and honoring uh, and them honoring me, I often, you know, I, I knew that my percep my perceptions were kind of different. So, yeah. um, from early on, I always played differently from my family. Mm. Um, but I, I don't think, uh, I don't think I was profoundly different from them. I didn't feel like a freak of nature or anything like that. Yeah. But I definitely surprised them. I'll just yeah. put it that way. Were you aware of, of that difference in perspective at that time? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Because I would say something and they would look so surprised. And, and the same thing happened in school. You know, someone would ask a question and I'd answer it. And my answer would be right. But the teacher would be very surprised that I would put it in that way. Or, um, and this has been my whole life. I remember once I, when I, I got my MFA at Boston University in uh, creative writing in poetry. And I remember uh, going to speak to one instructor and he said, he said we were talking about the um, anti-nuke movement, mm -hmm. which I've always been excited by and, and really been paying attention to. And he said to me, I said, yes, I'm very for unilateral nu nuclear limitation. And he said, well, you can't do that because there's, there's multiple sides. I said, oh, no, no. I had interpreted unilateral meaning all sides were one side. And so I, I totally missed the point, Bradley. I, I mean, I, I, I've always seen things. And, and sometimes I have to have an actual correction because obviously when I say unilateral and you say unilateral, we should mean the same thing. But I think that... Um, it's a difference in vision 
And I think creative people, people who are born naturally curious and naturally creative often have a different perspective on the world. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in talking to you about is your work with, with leadership. And I know on your blog, mm-hmm. you talk about the crisis of leadership in this country. Um, certainly <laughs> the last five years, things have really been uh, haywire for, for everybody, um, not just mm-hmm. uh, socially and um and politically, but I think personally as well, just dealing with all of this stuff. I want to, this is kind of a two-parter. So on one hand, I'm really curious about your work in, in leadership and how creativity is important to that work. Um, and, and just a side note, I, I find myself when I, I use the word creativity a lot and I start to kind of lose touch with the meaning of it. Uh, mm-hmm. that it's, it's a little amorphous and a lot of people associate that with, with artistic specific aesthetic artistic work. And, um, and so I'm, I'm looking at it from kind of a broader definition, thinking more in terms of, um, innovative approaches to things, uh, nonlinear solutions, um, abstract, um, that, that kind of lateral thinking as well as aesthetic and, and specifically creative and novel approaches to stuff. So with, with kind of that in mind, not just an aesthetic approach, but also a multivariate approach to, to problem solving, how do you address leadership uh, and creativity in, in helping people move forward? Well, I, I think what I'd say is that I, I'm just going to build on what I said before about how um, creativity in a way is just having a different angle on a challenge or a problem or a question or an observation. So a lot of us are trained quite strongly just to look straight on and in a linear way. And when we succumb to that training, we are less creative because basically we're accepting the status quo. Right. And the more we accept the status quo, Sometimes that's important in a culture. I mean, all of us do have a certain status quo acceptance. But the more we take a linear approach and, to, and accept the status quo, the less creative we become because the more assumptions we absorb from the, the given way of thinking. And so creativity, I think, is about coming from an angle. Or I often think about creativity as, as being having access to a prism of perceptions, a prism of approaches. So. To apply that to leadership, I would say that a really creative leader isn't stuck in one way of looking at a problem. They look at a problem in multiple ways and they can look at a problem in a, for example, a really effective leader can think collectively and work in a team as well as think individually and work uh, as a visionary in that individual way. But, and a really creative leader can do both and can switch when it's necessary. And so I think creativity uh, for me in leadership is, it's not just about the results, the innovation, although that's the marker of it, isn't it? It's, it's that people are able to switch the, along, the lines of, along the lines of the prism into what's needed. So they're fluid, they're flexible, they're, they're not stuck into one way of thinking or one assumption or bias or, or belief about the world. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that they don't have integrity. 
because you can have a core and multiple approaches. It's about how do we approach the world as leaders? What is needed? What is called for? What is my calling? And how shall I express that calling? The leader who does that creatively actually finds ways to be innovative and to stabilize whatever's needed. And so I think when I think of creative leadership, I think of leadership, for example, in the past five years, we've had polarized thinking, radically polarized thinking, really freezing this country. So a really creative leader breaks through that polarization. And it takes a lot of creativity to do that because even, even those of us who are trying not to be polarized are succumbing to polarization right. of our thinking. So uh, leaders who can break through that with their followers, with their co-leaders, with their co-creators, whatever kinds of roles they're creating, that's powerful creativity. And I think that's where it comes in leadership. Mm -hmm. Now, can you talk a little bit about what story weaving is and why story is important? And, and I'd, I'd love to dovetail that a little bit into what we're talking about with leadership. Um, because it, it strikes me that empathy is, is a big part of this conversation. Um, and, and I suspect that in, in the work that you do with people's personal narratives and those blocks that, that, that empathy, both for oneself and also the world is, is a part of what, what you're connecting to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd like to start with why I developed story weaving, um, in terms of my evolution as a thinker, I went to get my PhD thinking that I was going to become a, your traditional professor, you know, an academic, a theoretician. And I was really interested, and I still am very interested in questions of freedom. What is the nature of freedom? What is the nature of the way we, what makes, what, what is, what makes us the best human, as Hannah Gadsby says? what makes us able to be adaptive and resilient and change because the world demands that we change um, and also know ourselves as a stable human being so for me that's all the questions behind what is nature what is the nature of freedom what is the nature of change and uh and when i when i got into the traditional academic track i realized that uh that it was going to ask me not to ask big questions this was just my experience but to, it, it, they wanted me not to ask big questions and they also wanted me to just kind of put out little blocks of measurable academic work that that and that i should i would have to postpone the big questions for later because they were dangerous questions uh, and part of that is where i landed i gotta own that not every academic situation is like that. But what I realized is when I got to that place is I need to open up my life so I can ask big questions. And in order to do that, I had to challenge the stories that I was telling myself about what was necessary and good for me. And I, I began to study Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian energetics. And I worked with traditional Hawaiian teachers and they have a whole different sense of the world where knowledge and meaning is passed through talk story, not through an idea. 
And so between talk story, my interest in archetypes, my interest in the arts and cultural storytelling, I began to think, okay, what is this thing called story and how does it run our lives? And so I designed story weaving to bring together all of my interests in this big question, what is the nature of freedom? And this is what I came up with. Uh, all of us design who we are through the stories that we tell ourselves, but most of those stories are unconscious. And when we make them conscious, we actually have a chance to choose them. That is, we can creative, creatively redesign them. And I'm not talking about saying, oh, this horrible thing happened to me in my youth. Um, I'm going to pretend it didn't and make up a whole new story. That's supposedly works for some therapeutic ways, but it, it, I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about saying, um, what stories are running my head right now? So for me, I had to give up the story. I prepared to be a professor, therefore I must be a professor. So I had to get rid of that story in my head. I had to re reprogram my neural net so that I could become curious as to what could I do with all the gifts and callings that I brought to the situation? What talk story did I want to live with my life? And I began, and I, and I, and I, I thought, I thought, I thought of this phrase, uh, it's not unique with me, but um, the lived story. So the stories that we're living, our lived story has to be woven into a way of being that fits who, who we are, not just our core story, which is what I think is the part that remains stable, but the prism of stories that we are capable of sharing with the world. So creativity is about stepping up and saying, oh, I'm living this story. For example, I was living, I must be a professor or else I have not succeeded. And I had to change that story. And I did successfully to, uh, first I had to change it to a question. What is my calling? And then I had to creatively explore what that calling was. And now I have a whole bunch of stories that substitute for that one narrow linear thought. And, and so story weaving is about consciously weaving the stories that we are living and choosing the ones that work for us and changing the ones that don't work anymore because right. our stories change as we get older, if we're healthy. So there's a, a number of points. That's fascinating. Um, I'm two things that jumped out to me. Number one is, is that connection to the, uh, the oracular uh, information transfer that uh, are incidentally are you familiar with ian mcgilchrist's work at all master no. and his emissary uh -uh. i highly recommend it he's been very influential in my thinking especially in the last year um he is a, a neuroscientist and a psychologist who i guess it was about 10 years ago that he published this book he's just come out with another one um, master and his emissaries about, uh, left and right hemispheric, um, patterning and, and dominance and sort of upending the old paradigm of the left hemisphere being dominant and, and that the right one is the artistic sort of creative frou-frou that needs to be reined in. Um, and he says, it's quite the opposite that the, that the left hemisphere is a fabulous servant, but a terrible master. And um, and that it's, in fact, the right hemisphere 
who sees the big picture, who has the ability to, and it's not that they're not both uh, rational or able to work in concert to develop reason. It's that they are two distinctly different ways of assessing a given situation. And, and the, the example that he uses or that I've heard most frequently is that of an animal or a bird, for instance, who needs to focus and grasp literally and figuratively the, the seed or the bug or, you know, the thing, the fruit that it's eating and to manipulate it and use its beak. And that's a left hemispheric modality. And then the right hemisphere has to maintain a grasp on the big picture and to be aware of its surroundings, that there's a hawk, uh, you know, 200 yards away who's coming, approaching or whatever the situation is. And that we are similarly built, uh, in fact, nearly identically. Um, but that obviously in the last 200, 300 years, the left hemisphere has been dominant and that that has that mode of being and seeing, you know, it contributes to spoken language, obviously, um, but it's not, it's not germane just to the left hemisphere, but it also, it's about it's this myopic focus on little and, and how things work and taking things apart. Um, so I say all that to come back to this notion of the oracular, this oral tradition, which uh, values very much the, the bigger picture and one's position in it. And that sense of empathy and that sense of place um, mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about Hawaiian culture. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear you talk a little bit more about, because you're obviously well-versed in archetype. You're teaching us that at Pacifica. Um, how, how does that perspective, both the, the oral tradition, but also specifically the Hawaiian energetic tradition serve your work? Well, well, one of the things that I, I kind of want to quickly say is um, before I address this left and right hemisphere and the Hawaiian indigenous perspective, and, and there's a lot of thoughts running through my head, but one, one thing I want to say is that uh, the oracular tradition, the way that the way that we live by talking story uh, is, it's a really practical approach. It sounds theoretical. Mm -hmm. until you start actually paying attention to the stories that you're living. And right. then it's really about moving into a relationship with ourselves where we actually are owning the stories that we're telling, that we're living, and that we're absorbing. Mm -hmm. Because we're always absorbing stories. We're always telling stories, even if we, they don't come out like a regular story. And we're always living a story. So, so in the work that I do, um, and right now my main work is with writers and artists. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in supporting people to move to a place where they're actually resilient and fluid enough that they can have an effective creative practice and they can have an effective personal practice that, that they, they go together in that, in that, um, that they're infinity symbol or yeah. they dovetail, right? They're yeah. harmonious because, because that's what I think, creative people need, whether we're leaders or artists, uh, in order to function. We need to have a grasp of the stories that we're living 
at the stories that we're telling people and at the stories that we are participating in and negotiating in our lives. So I, I wanted to say that. Um, because what you were saying about the left and the right, the big picture and the small picture, I think you're, I think this, I have to read this. This is, this sounds fascinating because, because just what you've said makes sense to me. If we stay in the small story, then it's all about, oh my God, how am I going to pay the rent instead of, which is a, not an unimportant question, but instead of, instead of what are my choices here in the big picture? Let me look around. Where am I? Where am I living? I mean, whether we think about it in the Buddhist idea of being present and being really present and, and, and alive to the world, or whether we think about it in indigenous points of view that we are part of a larger community with all beings and that our story is not a singular one. Our story is actually part of a community of stories and that we have a responsibility to be part of a community of stories and to connect with all those stories. So that the tiny questions, the small questions, the, 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 the tiny problems that we might need to solve in order for that bird to get the fruit or whatever, um, those, those are actually hobbling questions if that's the majority of the time we spend. And I love that because, because basically how can we be aware of our calling or who we are or our relations with other people or the way our stories are, are dovetailing being negotiated in the larger picture? How can we be creative if we're always trying to make our, our, our Google calendars look perfect? You know, so I think that's a really good and exciting idea. And I know I've kind of brought it down to a small practical point. Oh, not at all. Now, now I want to talk about the Hawaiian as it relates to all of this. Um, Hawaiian, the Hawaiian indigenous culture is uh, like all indigenous cultures about uh, our connection with the whole world. So elementally, earth, air, water, fire. Um, elementally, we are all connected. We are all made up of the same elements. Uh, there is a spiritual, there are gods in the, in the Hawaiian pantheon, but those gods and man are partners in co-creation. It's a very different relationship. And the third thing is, is that um, it, is, it is talk story that is at the heart of our relationships with each other. So if, if you ask me a question, how are you today? If I was answering in the Hawaiian way, I'd say, well, you know, I just came back from um, the store where I met, I met someone and, I, and, and we had this great conversation and I tell you that story. And that is an appropriate answer in the Hawaiian culture, although it's a, a bit of a banal example. So it is the story of our experiences, the story of our memories, the story of where we are that 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 we use to teach or to share or to or to move into a co-creative space. And I imagine that 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 also that implies um, uh, being aware, <laughs> you know, like I, I live in and grew up in the South where that sort of colloquial interchange often starts in sort of a banal rote fashion. But I mean, to this day, as I drive down the street, people wave which doesn't happen in Seattle, doesn't happen in New York. Um, but that, that investment in, um, in story, in, in both presenting and understanding, I think is a, 
Right. And that even that wave is saying, you're part of my story. Right. Right. You're part of my community. You're part of my story. Yeah. Even if we don't vote along right. party and lines. The more, yes, exactly. And the more that we are creative in the ways we connect, mm -hmm. the more likely we are, I think, as a people to get beyond that polarization. How did you find Hawaii? And what's going on in the back of my head is I'm, I'm vaguely also aware of, and this is a Pacifica reference, Joseph Campbell's relocating to Hawaii. Um, not that that's germane to your story, but that there's a, there's a powerful pull for a lot of artists. I mean, obviously it's quite beautiful there. Um, but, what was how what was your path there like what what attracted you and did you live there what an interesting no i never really lived there i thought about it mm -hmm. um but i i didn't move there in the end um basically i when i lived in chicago when i was getting my phd i met a man named ed spencer and ed had been trained by a kumu um a kahuna, actually a kahuna, a, 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 I don't know, we, we would call her a shaman, but she was a healer and, a, and she had been trained by her grandmother and she was one, trained in the old ways. He had been trained by her and he, had be, he became my healer for a time. And, um, and at, at some point I thought, I really want to study with Ed. I want to study this Hawaiian thing. So I took a class and it literally knocked me off my feet. <laughs> I was sitting in the middle of this class thinking, this is home. How is that possible? And then a couple years later, I went to Hawaii and took a class because uh, he taught classes on Hawaii with some of his other teachers, our Kumu. And um, I never had been called to Hawaii before, but there is something powerful about the energy of Hawaii. If you enter it, not as a tourist and with those umbrella drinks, but you enter it as a person connecting with the land and the energy of the land and the actual people of Hawaii, which is not easy to do because there's no good reason for indigenous people to trust non-indigenous people. And so you've really got to earn the trust of the teachers and the people that you meet in any community that is not dominant white Western culture. Uh, so I went to Hawaii and I started studying with Ed and the other Kumu there and, and grew an affinity with the communities there and with the land. Um, and there is something, you know, I'm not surprised Joseph Campbell settled there because there is something about being on an island and also the energy of all the islands are basically, if they are not active volcanoes, they once were. So there's an energy of this creation of and of making there that opens up um, basically all your pores. It's not just the beauty. It is beautiful, but <clears throat> there's something more to it. It's very alive. And, uh, and although I did, did not decide to move there, mostly because I think I realized I was yearning for the ancient times, which are gone and done. And I didn't want to move there like some kind of wide-eyed, yes, I'm going to find the old Hawaii. Because I realized that I wanted to, that that was uh, silly. Old Hawaii is gone. New Hawaii is a complex situation. I, I get to appreciate 
what I know and, and live a, in a more Hawaiian way wherever I am, if I'm following um, aloha. <laughs> I have briefly an amazing energetic story or story of energetic encounter in Hawaii. I, I uh, had a girlfriend whose mom lived on Maui and we visited one Christmas back in the 90s and I grew up on a farm. I'm a country boy at heart. And, mm -hmm. um, and we spent a lot of time, uh, kind of out away from the towns, uh, hiking, uh, and we were on the King's highway, which big mm -hmm. lava flow that goes down to the ocean. And I've always encountered bones, bones and, and old pieces of steel. Like it's just, and, and significant pieces, like not just, you know, a femur or, a, uh, but like you know, entire chunks of vertebra and skulls and stuff like that. And we're coming up this path on the King's Highway. And I look down and there's this gorgeous vertebra. It looks like a fish of some kind, but it's big. Um, could have, I mean, it could have even been a seal. I don't know. It was a large. And mm. my instinct was like, oh, this is great. This is, you know, I'll get to bring this home. And I reached down and I picked it up. And out of the corner of my eye, something just flew out of the sky and dive bombed me. It, I, it could have been an insect. It could have been a bird. I mean, and it attacked like and no birds for miles that I saw. No insects, nothing. Just the moment I picked it up with the intention of taking this thing, just pow. I was like, oh, OK, I get the message. I put it back down. <laughs> like, OK, wow. That was instant. Um, but, and I had those encounters, you know, in different places in the world, I've felt that kind of energy, but nothing quite as immediate and shocking, uh, as, as Hawaii. It really was present in a way that, um, few places are. Yes, I absolutely agree. I had a lot of those experiences. I even had an experience where <clears throat> I wanted to go find <clears throat> a certain kind of petroglyph because I was fascinated for a while with petroglyphs. <clears throat> and uh, we were on a break from class and I was driving and my car felt like it was going through molasses. I couldn't get the car to go quickly. I couldn't get the car to go the speed limit. So I pulled over, thought there was something wrong with the car. And I turned around because there was a gas station in the other direction and the car was fine. <laughs> Somebody, and big hand I drove was just pushing you. Some big hand was just going, it's not this way, Carol. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and, and, and I was like, this is insane. It's a car. You know, you push the, it's no, a machine, right? The car, it does what you tell it. It's, yeah. It it does not, not on Hawaii. Yeah. And actually one of the other things I think is that Hawaii makes it easier somehow for us, any of the islands make it easier for us to pay attention to that, those kinds of messages. We must be getting them all the time. But maybe something about Hawaii makes us, makes us, if we're willing, more attentive. There must be times when I'm driving my car and it feels sluggish. And I don't think, oh, this is a message. I think, oh, I got to change the oil and I put my feet harder on the gas. This, I'm making a mental note to start scheduling workshops uh, when I teach workshops in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> to go there, yes, that maybe there'll be something there that'll really catalyze folks. So uh, I think there will be. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about story. Um, you and I have 
theater very much in common. It's something we've we've spoken about before. And as we're talking about story and and the power of story, I'm aware the of at least from my perspective, my limited perspective, that the role of theater and the role of that voice, that storied voice for the public is very weak right now. Um, um, that it's, it's kind of diluted, as far as I can tell, both by internet, by, you know, the, the, there's just tons, it's a saturated, um, everyone's vying for our attention. And it's very rare, especially because of the pandemic, that we're able to go in person and, and listen to and receive and to have that interplay. What what's the next step from your perspective? I know you you did you were a, a theater critic and you've got a um, is it your MFA? No, you said that's in poetry. Where did you study performance studies? At Northwestern, my PhD is in cultural studies and performance right. studies. Right. Um, so th this is something I'm really curious to hear you speak about. I believe that there's that there's a, there's a huge amount of epic theater being performed for us on national stages on um, and on traditional stages across the country. There's a, there's a huge amount, uh, and even on television, there are these, these, these big stories being performed for us, which aren't really helping us to open up to living bigger stories. In fact, a lot, a lot of the stories that I see in the theater or on television, which is the little theater, or on the computer, which is the even littler theater, which you can stream forever, all of those stories, I think that they, that they serve, as many people, as many theater experimenters have said, they serve to put us back to sleep rather than to wake us up to our own power to intersect with these stories. Um, and so, so for me, I think what the time to think about what we need now, I think we need a way of storytelling that brings us into the gray area comfortably. So it's almost as if we need a theater or we need a creative expression of, of, uh, of ideas that puts us in a comfortable basket and takes us out of the right or the left side of our thinking, or even the right or the left side of our brains, and brings us into the gray area of, I don't know, I wonder, and what might this mean? The best theater I've ever seen has, has entirely enveloped me and left me with more questions than answers. And I think that's, that's a funny thing I was just hearing, and I'm trying to remember the quote, but um, being that answers are, are dangerous. Oh, I know what it was. I just found my notes from when I saw Ann Bogart speak at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2000 when I was exhuming my studio. Um, and, and she was talking exactly about that, that, that theater should be about bringing up questions and that that answers are are dangerous because answers uh, are are static and answers are i think she used the word uh trapping 
so that um, so that's a, it's interesting for me to hear you talk specifically about that that wanting to have more questions at the end of this. I was thinking of Ann Bogart as as one of the innovators that brings up more questions than answers. And every theatrical, every storytelling experience gives us a sense of answering something, but the really great ones open up questions as they answer. So, and why is this important? I mean, for me is because, um, because in order to be creative, we need to be able to ask questions that are really hard. You know, one of my graduate students at, North, at, at uh, the school that I taught at for a while said, um, when I told her I was leaving, she said, oh, I'm going to miss you, but I won't miss you. I said, oh, what do you mean? And she said, well, Carol, working with you is, is incredible, but it's really hard. She said, because you ask impossible questions, and then you expect us to answer them, and then we do. And I thought, what a great wow, compliment. that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. As, as a yeah. teacher, and, fabulous. And, oh, it was sweet. It made me think, rethink leaving. But, you know, I just thought, well, let me keep practicing that. Because I think in the end, I think that's what creativity gives us the opportunity to, opportunity to do, to ask an impossible question, to answer it, and then know that it, is, it can never be fully answered. That, that the process of moving through these questions and finding some of the answers and finding more questions, that is what makes us human. That's what's exciting. That's the creativity of everyday life. And the, when, when we narrow to thinking that we have all the answers or we know exactly what we're supposed to be or who we're supposed to be or how we're supposed to act, then we start looking only for things that confirm us. Right, that confirmation and bias creativity, that we're so stuck in right now yeah yeah exactly and you know the creative life is about not being confirmed you know when, when we put something in the world that's really creative there's always going to be someone pops up says uh pardon me carol no 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 and um uncomfortable as that may be sometimes it's part of a process it's not it's about in, in a commodified culture, it's about embracing process rather than product. And, and that's, that's the power of theater, actually, that in theater, we know, oh, it's that willing suspension of disbelief, right? If only we could bring that into our daily life. And this is, and we, you and I have spoken about clowning. Clowning opens up the willing suspension of dis disbelief. And brilliant clowning is really uncomfortable because you don't know what to believe. Right. Yeah. Have you ever had that moment when you see either a clown or someone doing mask work where you simultaneously see the character and the performer behind yes. the mask or that it's kind of that flip flop back and forth? Part of why I think people have such a phobia or there's such a cultural thing with clowns is is specifically that is that it it highlights the humanity of of the performer but it also exaggerates the humanity um and um and, that's, and it also takes away the humanity but it takes away the humanity of the performer as well because it it moves it's an ambiguous space where you that where that dual identity is always there 
This is an interesting perspective. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine um, and we were talking about gender fluidity and we were talking about the LGBTQ uh, community and and I was recounting experiences I've had working with or performing with drag queens and this sense of mm. of real fear. Uh, I mean, I've performed in drag before. Uh, I, I have, you know, I had a long performance career, but there's, there was something about, you know, this statuesque, highly made up, very flamboyant, just exaggerated, almost a caricature of a woman that it was like, wow, this is, I can feel this is a visceral thing. And my friend said, well, you know, that's because they're clowns. And I said, wait, what? (laughs) Like, it really hit me on the side of the head. But it's like across the board, look at this and not clown in a derogatory meaning of the word. But in that hyper real, in that fully made up caricature of their own, you know, feminine, their anima, whatever you want to call it, that 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 simultaneous power and and vulnerability uh, is is a force of nature, and that's. I really think that there's, you know, I'm I'm also remembering when you're talking about we need a sort of a safe way or a comfortable way to bring people into an experience, either theatrically or you know in in whatever format we can manage it to, to kind of bring those stories back and to help people confront their own. Um, vulnerability to bring them back into those stories of empathy with one another, that sense of, of communitas, of understanding. Um, it can be difficult, especially when right now so many voices are so strong and so angry. There's so much um, mm-hmm. fear and anxiety behind those. So I- I'm winding up to a question, I promise, which is, how what is that way and does it need to be comfortable and and why that's a great question um as you were talking about drag queens i was thinking about performances that i saw um in chicago uh where drag queens made everybody really comfortable but it challenged nothing so there was a there was a famous drag uh drag review and a lot of um bachelorette parties would go there and they all had, you know, penis hats and they were performing this weird bachelorette thing or the, the bride to be had a penis hat on. I remember seeing that and the drag Queens made them feel totally comfortable. Absolutely. But there's nothing comfortable about a drag Queens life. There's nothing comfortable about being a bride. There's nothing comfortable like, so it was this moment where the drag queen made them comfortable, but it wasn't by bringing them into an ambiguous space. It was by saying, it's okay, dear. The mm. clown was saying, it's okay, dear. I know, I know. Wear your penis hat. <laughs> it's silly. But... And, and then I, I talked to the drag, one of the drag queens afterwards, and he said, yeah, I hate those bridal parties, the things we have to do to make them laugh. You know, yeah. so that's that's actually not what I'm talking about. But there are the drag queens that cross a line somewhere and do a performance of gender that brings everyone into 
a new place with them, transforming our relationship that we have with our own gender. And that's, and, and a, great, a, a great performance by a drag queen comfortably brings us there because we're playing. And I think that's what I'd say the, the thing that makes it possible for us to move into that uncomfortable place because it, it isn't comfortable. It isn't safe. Creativity isn't safe. Innovation isn't safe. Change isn't safe. It's not that it's dangerous like a loaded gun. Right. It's just as humans, we aim, we, you know, we naturally, biologically, I don't know what it is, but we want to move into stability. We want to move into certainty. We want to feel like we've done the right thing. And the act of moving out of that is, 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 is an act that requires playfulness. And anybody who can't play can't go there. So I think play is the basket, but it's not necessarily comfortable. It's just a container for it. So any, and, and in fact, leaders do it. Everybody does it. If there's a place of possibility, you know, play is what we call it in the theater, right? When you go to a workshop and you play, and then suddenly you have this epiphany or this, this sudden sense of, oh my God, I never knew that about myself that you, we got there because we were playing with some other story or we were playing with some exercise. And leaders will say, let's create a place of possibility. But really that's play too. This really harkens back in my mind to both to the, the right and left hemispheric conversation, but also to, um, to Csikszentmihalyi's flow work, right? And yeah. the, to get into that that sense of sort of other world and expansiveness of, of engagement with an activity, which ultimately is creative, requires that sense of play, requires that sense of, of um, it's not virtuosity. I mean, although that does accelerate it, it really, it has to do with that engagement. It has to do with being outside of yourself. Um, and I think that there's something about theater which at its best when it is handled virtuosically pulls people without them participating except for that willing suspension of disbelief into that state of flow and and does take you on a journey so i do think um that's you know you hit the nail on the head that where it's about play and that that really is a, a right hemisphere modality yeah, and maybe what that does is it puts the master in the 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 correct master in charge. I think so. Right, the right hemisphere is the master, mm -hmm. and the left is the servant, ideally. So play, you know, you know, a lot of people are we're nostalgic for our childhood where we say, "Oh, I was so free." I mean, not everybody. <laughs> Let's be honest, but. You know, oh, I used to play all the time. Oh, I felt so creative. Oh, I could do anything. Oh, I didn't know that I had any limitations. I don't know what stories people tell about their childhood, um, but this nostalgia for that sense of play. And it does seem to me, it does seem to me that we have to practice that. We have to practice creativity. We have to practice play which is why I talk about the process. Because if we're not practicing it fairly regularly, then what we're doing is a to-do list, which is one of the most mind-numbing 
unsatisfying activities. Of course, it organizes us. I'm glad I have to-do lists. Yeah. But they are not the be-all and end-all of my life. And a day with a day when that's all I pay attention to is a day without without creativity. Even if I put creativity on my to-do list, it doesn't quite work. Well, I was just going to ask, do you have suggestions or how would you guide people to starting that process of of inviting that sense of, of play back into their lives, especially given that we live in a, a left brain dominant culture and that those sorts of things tend to be looked at uh, askance? That's a great question. So I have a few a few suggestions. Um, one is really something that probably everyone would come up with, which is that we ought to um, in, engage in a relationship with the arts. So go to theater, go see live music, or if you can't because you're for COVID or whatever reason, listen to music, um, listen to podcasts, listen to listen to people who are who are just kind of thinking out of the box or playing with music. Um, connect with something that isn't your small life, connect mm. with something bigger. And the arts is a great way to do that. Um, and I would say that's, that's what we should be doing at minimum to make sure that that part of us stays open and receptive. But in terms of personal creativity, personal play and creative process, whatever product you're linking it to, I think that uh, things like journaling, things like uh, drawing, collaging, giving yourself time to play with images, to not worry like, it, like we did as children, to not worry about the outcomes, but to see what the process would be like. And the other thing I would say is <clears throat> thinking about story weaving and the way that we live a story unconsciously, if we realize that we're living a story, change the rules of the game you're playing because it's a game. You know, in uh, performance studies, we, we studied Irving Goffman and he discussed, he has a book called The Performance of Self in Everyday Life. And the, if, <clears throat> and, and he's not saying that the self is an inauthentic in any way, but right. he's saying that we, we present ourselves, we perform ourselves. That multiplicity. So perform yourself, yes. Mm -hmm. So perform yourself differently, perform your story differently, play with how you present yourself in the world. Um, surprise yourself and and change the stories you can change. So if you always wear a, a, a long tie to work, wear a bow tie one day. Play with your roles, play with your relationships, do something a little different. Um, because not everybody's going to sit down and write a journal. Not everyone's going to do a mind map or a collage or anything like that. Those are things that some people are never going to do. But uh, but if we actually open up a space for play wherever we can, then what happens is that space gets a little bigger and everywhere else. And, uh, and, and so I look at, for example, I look behind you and I see those hats on the wall. And I love the way the imagination goes to the hats. Mm -hmm. My uncle, um, and this is a family story. My uncle was a, <clears throat> was a volunteer fireman and he had, he had a hat, his volunteer fireman hat was on the wall by the door so that he could grab it before he went out. But when I was a child, he said, well, yes, there, that's, that's the volunteer fireman. 
we, I just wanted to show his hat, but he's behind the wall. You know, so, so I always imagined that there was this sleeping volunteer fireman, and then he pulls it off and then springs out this volunteer fireman. The hat on the wall is the fireman. Yeah. And, 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 and if you can play with that moment and that perception, then every single hat. Now I think, oh, I wonder who, who's behind that hat. Mm-hmm. I know they're your hats. Willing suspension of disbelief allows me to move into a more playful space. So, um, and the last suggestion I'll make, I could make a million because we need to develop neuroplasticity. We need to be able to change our neural net. We need to stay alert is to play with children, to play with children who still know how to play and be fearless with them. Not, uh, don't insist, insist on the rules, but say, why don't you tell me, me a story? Say, why don't we make up the rules of this game new? And then you just play with them. You move into their space. All of these are ways that all of us ordinary adults who are getting stuck in our to-do list can actually start to play and practice creativity. And hopefully it can seep into our souls. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. It really reminds me um, of two things. One when I would teach theater classes, especially to to younger students, both grade school, sometimes even at the college level, um, you know, you're playing with internal and external awareness. Um, and the mantra that I would always use and really try to cement was notice what you notice. And that playing with with that throughout your, I mean, especially with, with younger kids, even high school kids, that, um, and this is a, a direct quote from Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary. He says, attention is a moral act. And it took me a while. I mean, it's <laughs> it's transformed my life in the last six months since I read that. But it's really, um, it's a profound change of perspective, especially given what a cacophony of voices are vying for our attention right now. But that, you know, with those wonderful suggestions that you have about how to engage and invite creativity and play into your life uh, and the, the transformative power of that is, is to also be aware of that attention, right? Where that attention goes and how, and how that defines us. Right. Um, It's lovely. Yeah. You know, there's one more thing I want to say, because I work a lot with uh, writers and people who have dedicated their lives to being immersed in flow in the creative act. I was speaking with one of my writers last night, and she's uh, working on a, an experimental novel. <clears throat> and so she's working with a character who is full of paradoxes. And that's all I'll say about her project. But um, as I was listening to her, I realized that... Um, this is how we play in our purposive, inten- intentional creativity. You go to the place that is not quite comfortable for you or your characters or for anybody else. You go to that place and where you feel that frottage of paradox, you feel that, that discomfort, that energy of like conflict or, or um, I'm a little afraid to go there or, or, or excitement, however it manifests, and say, okay, 
I'm going to stay here. And then what happens is what is small expands into something new. But it's that tension as a creative writer or as an actor or as anything else, as anybody else, um, maybe even as a creative leader, that if we're not afraid of the tension that normally pushes us away, then what, ha what can happen is a blossoming. And I think that a lot of people want to be creative, but they're afraid because they feel that tension as a risk. But it's, but it's not a danger. It is a risk, but it's not a danger. It's a discomfort, right? As you said. And, and embracing that discomfort, eventually we get into flow and then the discomfort becomes pleasure until it becomes discomfort again. And we have, we get to go, Oh boy, I'm here again. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> because it's that both in the moment. That's brilliant. Leaning into those, those moments of, of tension and, uh, and discomfort. So as, as we're wrapping up, um, I want, I have one final question for you, um, which may or may not tie all these things together, but, uh, what, what is the question that's not being asked right now. You know, in the, in the cacophony that we're having with, with the internet, internet uh, conversations we're having and the Facebook performances and all that stuff, in all the cacophony, in all the oppositions, um, my impulse is to say that what we're not asking is how can we come together but that's being asked all over the place because everyone's saying wait how can we be pulled apart how can why, why aren't we coming together how can we come together everyone's desperate for that so one of the things i think that is not being asked on a soul level in our culture and for most individuals is the question that vibrates behind how can we come together, which is what is my calling? What am I called to offer in, what am I called to offer in the world to make a connection? And I think, and I think that is fundamentally a creative question because there isn't, there are only there are only questions and applications of questions once we have a an inkling of the answer and the answer is always evolving so the, i'd say that the question that's not being asked right now is what is my calling from the world because if we answer if we ask that question then we don't get stuck in why are we so far apart why can't we just get along which are questions that lead us to dead ends. But, you know, what is my job? Or as the Hawaiians say, what is my kuleana? What is my responsibility and my calling in the world? And how can I step up to that? And I guarantee you, Bradley, anybody that asks that question immediately steps into a creative life. Because it is about being the unique people we are in the unique moment we're in and the unique gifts we bring. That's wonderful. Thank you. So Dr. Burbank, uh, 
what are you up to? Where can people find more information out about you and your work, uh, connect with you in the world? Well, uh, the best place is my website, storyweaving.com. You can get <clears throat> links and information about my uh, self-help workbook, uh, Answer the Call to Adventure. You can also look, find out about my children's book that I've written with my mom with her 90-year-old teddy bears, believe it or not, uh, as, as, as the subject matter. And you can also find out more about the work I do in the world and how I'm manifesting my calling right now. So I think that's the best way. Best place to go, storyweaving.com. Excellent. We'll put those links down uh, below here uh, in the podcast. Dr. Burbank, thank you so much for joining us. You are the first interview on The Quotidian, and it's been an honor and a pleasure. Oh, it's been a pleasure for me, too, and I'm honored that I am the first, and I know I won't be the last. <laughs> Thank you.